No, that that makes a lot of sense. You know, or Barack Obama was the Antichrist, or Donald Trump, or Joe Biden, or Elon Musk. You know, and then then that's how the conversation uh, started that I was having with Dan Govach. The other thing that you bring up there, obviously the mark of the beast is the big one. So yeah, I read some old stuff, you know, was it the social security number? You know, now the vaccine, then is it this rice grain size microchip that people are implanting between their uh, thumb and index finger? That'll be the form of payment with central bank digital currency, which is obviously programmable and expirable. So that decides where you can uh, buy things, when you can buy, who you can buy from, who you can sell to. But, you know, one of the questions I brought up, I'm not going to go off uh, too far off track here because we'll come back uh, and pick up after um, your reading of Planet Earth. But one of the things that's interesting, and I've asked this to Mark, I've asked it to Dan and some of these other pastors, sometimes I wonder... So does the scripture predict the things that you're seeing today? Or in some cases, are these technocrats, these bankers, these folks in charge, actually doing things like that to mimic what was going, what's already written in scripture, right? So if I wanted to freak everyone out or do a giant psychological operation, could I not say we're going to do a microchip inside the fleshy part of your hand and that's going to control the central bank digital currency? Because that would freak people out in, into going, wait, that's the beast system right there and plant it in your hand. It controls when you can buy and when you can sell. So that's sometimes what I wonder. It's like, is life imitating art or is art imitating life? And uh, it's interesting you bring this up. So it was Hal Lindsey that really kicked off the last uh, 55 years almost of folks basically playing fortune teller with the uh, end time scripture. I think it's more, uh, I don't know if it's fortune telling or just uh, maybe it's uh, kind of like science, religious science fiction. I don't know. Um, uh, he got people thinking about it, and that's one of the good things that I think Lindsay did. I mean, I, I disagree with him on a lot of fronts, but one thing he did was, like I said, he made prophecy. All of a sudden, it was interesting. People mm-hmm. wanted to read it. People wanted to study it, and, and it, it gave rise to a, a lot of stuff. And Many of the systems um, that were out there were out there before Lindsay wrote his book, but they all started now like saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you're wrong here, Al. You you shouldn't be saying that. This is the right way to look at this, and then on and on it goes. Um, Now, I think, you know, if you look at, like I said, if you go back to to John, John in his three letters, first, second, and third John, which are before the Revelation in, in the Bible, um, you know, he, he speaks of the Antichrist as if he, he was already there. He talks about the spirit of the Antichrist, and there are many Antichrists, uh, leading up eventually to probably one Antichrist that will be at the, you know, end of days, so to speak. And this mark of the beast um, is, you know, it's been everything. It's been, you know, a computer chip. It's been a barcode. It's been your social security number. Any, anything you can imagine, you can make it that way. But in that day and time, again, we need to think about the scriptures, the way the original audiences thought about them. And in that day and time, when you took a mark, it was a brand. It's just like branding cattle. It was a mark of ownership. 
And we're real quick to jump on the mark of the beast because, ooh, that's scary. And you, know, you can see all kinds of things out there in technology that could be the mark of the beast, so to speak. But there are also passages that talk about those who are sealed with the mark of God in Revelation. And nobody wants to jump on that one. You know, uh, you know, the Antichrist has a barcode or he has a chip or he has this, you know. Well, God seals his people, too. They're marked as well. And the mark of the beast is basically a mark of ownership. Are you owned by the beast or are you owned by God? You're one of the two. And in John's day and time, they would have thought that, yeah, there are people who have the mark of the beast. And throughout the ages, there are people who had the mark of the beast, so to speak. And it wasn't a visible mark or a instrument of technology. It was this mark of ownership. The devil knew who were his, and God knew who were his. And if you, you know, like I said, you read Revelation, you talk about those who were sealed. Nobody wants to talk about, well, is God going to use a microchip? Is he going to give you, you got your special number from God, or you're going to get a barcode, you know, the, the, the holy barcode uh, that they'll scan. Okay, okay, you're one of God's. Go on in. Uh, you know, nobody <laughs> wants to apply the same rules to those who are sealed with the mark of God that they put on the mark of the beast. And, you know, even the beast itself, you've got a beast that comes out of the sea and a beast that comes out of the earth in Revelation. Um and, you know, and people are wildly trying to, to figure out what those are. But, you know, again, John uses Old Testament scriptures. And if you go back to Daniel, um, in several of Daniel's uh, apocalyptic visions that he has, um, you see empires, real legitimate historical empires that were hostile to the people of God. And they are depicted as beasts. And when you get to Revelation and you have the, the beast that comes out of the sea and the beast that comes out of the earth and what they do and all this kind of stuff, you know, it, it's not a stretch given, you know, that John relies on Daniel quite a bit to think that maybe these beasts are an empire of some kind, be it a country or be it uh, if we're taken over by some kind of technocracy. Uh, that that is even more powerful than government. I mean, whatever that is, this this thing represents these beasts represent you know uh, religion and government that are hostile to uh, believing Christians. Mm -hmm. And you know, which side are you on? You know, Travis at the Alamo drew a line in the sword with a uh, line in the sand with his sword. You know, get on this side or get on the other side. If you stay on this side, you're, you're staying with us and fighting. If not, you're free to go. And so, like I said, you've got the mark, and everybody wants to think it's the latest technology of the day, but they've been doing this for 2,000 years, and they've all been wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, right. and so and we do it today, uh, but in John's day, the mark was simply just – it's a mark of ownership. It's a brand. You're stamped with this brand that – you know, if you see this, you know that this person belongs to God. If not, this person belongs to the beast. And it's interesting that they use the forehead and the hand as the two places where, you know, the microchip is going to be inserted. Because 
again, trying to think like the ancient Hebrew thought, the forehead was the symbol for everything a man thought. Mm. And the hand was a symbol for everything man did. So if everything you think and everything you do is marked by the beast, then you belong to him. Ah. But if everything you think and everything you do is of God, as of the scriptures and, and all that, then, then you're marked with, you're sealed and marked with the mark of God. And I know Christians, good Christians, sincere Christians worry about, well, what happens if, you know, when, when the beast finally gets here, when it's really the Antichrist shows up on the scene and all this stuff starts to happen, what if they make me take the mark of the beast? What if they hold me down and give me the COVID vaccine or they put me down and give me a, a shot that's got a, a chip in it or something like that? You know, am I, am I going to hell? Well, no, because I think it's got to be bigger than technology. If the Antichrist doesn't show up here, for another thousand years, the microchips and the technology they've got today is going to be Stone Age then. So oh, oh, I think oh, we definitely. have to expand. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, I mean, definitely. Uh, it'll be Stone Age three years from now, uh, especially as we've reached yeah. this. Uh, I mean, we're almost at the point of the exponential growth of technology, where literally the technology today will be replaced by the technology of tomorrow. I mean, we're quickly approaching that point in time of which Ray Kurzweil, the chief engineer at Google, calls uh, singularity, uh, where we just reach this exponential growth. But uh, before we go, because uh, this is really interesting, and I like how you just broke down the forehead and the hand from the interpretation based on how they saw the forehead and the hand back then. But I want to just ask you before we go too far. So you said there's three views generally of the, of the rapture four views of the millennium and uh four ways to interpret uh revelation i mean we don't have to go into into like in-depth detail on this but i wanted you just to explain that a little bit just because i i'm interested in understanding uh those ways and then we'll get into more of of what uh, your belief system is now okay well um like i said there are you know, different ways, and this is probably going to be, you know, this is probably where people are going to, you know, like start to fall asleep. Because <laughs> it, it's not, you know, r really great and interesting. We don't have any dragons and, you know, things going on right here. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's four ways of interpreting <laughs> Revelation. And, that, <laughs> and they're the, what we call the schools of thought. And there's, there's one that sees Revelation as uh, already being fulfilled. That in AD 70, um, Rome came, sacked Jerusalem, tore down the temple, and that was spiritually Jesus's return uh, to judge the Jews that killed him, put him to death, and persecuted the Christians. Um, there are views that say that no, that's not right. It didn't all wrap up in AD 70. Everything is far flung into the future. Um, there's ones that kind of go in the middle. Well, some of this stuff happened in 70 AD, but some of it's still yet to come. Um, and you've got, um, you know, the, this newer one, the, which kind of what Hal Lindsey, um, was, was representing as kind of a pop, um, eschatology where, you know, all your end times thinking is, is comes out of the, the newspaper and off, uh, the TV. 
So you've got these, you know, four different ways of interpreting revelation. One spiritualizes things, you know, like, okay, um, you know, we got four views of the millennium, right? The millennium comes from Revelation chapter 20, where it talks about a thousand year reign on the earth of Christ. Now, there are a couple of view, views, and these tie back to the views of interpreting Revelation that say that it is absolutely 100%. It's going to be 1,000 years. Set your watch. When Jesus comes back, you know, 1,000 year reign. And then there's another group that says, well, no, 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 that's not really right. Uh, because that doesn't make any sense, you know, that the way you've got it playing out here, that the millennium is the period of time between the first and the second coming of Christ. And everything that happens in that time, that the millennium is a figurative or symbolic uh, picture of this time between the first and second comings of Christ. Um, you've got uh, the rapture, so to speak, and the word rapture, the, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Um, mm -hmm. Just so you know, it comes from a Latin term uh, that basically means to, to be called to go somewhere or to be called to someone. Um, but the Bible wasn't written in Latin. It was translated into Latin later. Um, but uh, originally it was uh, the Old Testament was in Hebrew until, uh, you know, uh, it was translated into Greek. Uh, the Septuagint, which was around, uh, you know, there, it, when you study the scriptures in um, the original languages, you can see places where Paul or John, where uh, Jesus even, quote the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, from the Septuagint, rather from the Hebrew text. Um, it was just around in those days and times. Um, and so you, you've got... You know, the views of the rapture, the, the word rapture isn't in there. Uh, the concept uh, is alluded to in there, and people take certain scriptures and run with it and say, nope, this is the rapture. But you've got the rapture um, occurs before what they call the tribulation. You've got those who believe that the rapture occurs during what they call the tribulation. And you've got those that believe that the rapture takes place at the second coming of Christ after the tribulation. Um, and like I said, all these are all things that people, um, you know, who are good Christians believe. They've come to it through one way or another. Two different ways to read Revelation. You can read Revelation as a linear chronology. In other words, chapter 2 logically follows chapter 1, chapter 3 logically follows chapter 2, and so on, till you get to the end of the book where the butler did it, you know, and wraps <laughs> it up. It all follows one long linear thought, you know, and it, it, it progresses just like a novel would progress. Uh, then you've got what they call the recapitulation view, where you read Revelation as a series of seven visions, and each of these visions take place between the first and the second coming of Christ, but they emphasize something different. They're looking at things differently. And the best way I've heard this explained, and I think this is a good illustration of that way of reading it, is it's kind of like climbing a spiral staircase. Mm -hmm. You're seeing the same things over and over again, but you're always seeing them from a different perspective, whether you're moving up or moving down the staircase. Mm. Um, and, and that's not a bad way to describe re recapitulation way of reading, but there you go. You've got two, you know, two different ways of reading Revelation that are both meaningful to the people who read them that way. Uh, and I've read them both ways. And, uh, you know, it, it's, I, I, 
I understand why people read them the way that they do. Uh, like I said, two different ways to define Israel. Um, two different, you know, all these different things. And it just people just throw up their hands after a while, especially. Now, either one, you're a hardcore adherent to one of the views. And that's it. I planted my flag. This is the hill. I'm going to die on this hill no matter what. And then mm-hmm. you got people that just want to just throw their hands up in despair and say, I can't make heads or tails of this. This is like trying to identify one single piece of spaghetti in the whole pot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's just, it's nuts. You're, you drive yourself crazy. I don't want to have anything to do with prophecy. I'm going back to the Psalms and the Proverbs and leave me alone. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and I understand why people get frustrated because if you want 20 different opinions, ask 10 different Christians. Yeah. <laughs> so the question is, did you ever read Revelation while walking up and down a spiral staircase? See, that might be the answer to how to actually interpret it. No. So numerous I, I, times, <laughs> Dustin, numerous times. <laughs> did you ever walk up and down the spiral staircase with a double COVID mask on while reading Revelation? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never done the double COVID mask. Uh, uh, I, I did put like a I, I did put a gorilla mask on, I think, you know, during COVID. They said that wouldn't do. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, no, no, no. I thought that was actually really interesting, at least to me. So I I would assume the audience does. That did not put me to sleep because this is a lot of what you're trying to work out, especially if you're trying to find a church or a fellowship and you're trying to sort through this and you're trying to decide uh, what fellowship you're most comfortable with. I mean, these are all the kind of questions that people would want to be asked asking and have a, a basic understanding of or if they want to do their own research as you've done over well if you started there in 1970 dana we're talking 53 years uh not not four decades so uh no that's why just made I me feel that, older dustin i know <laughs> I, but i that's but see that adds credibility to uh to your research and your knowledge and wisdom, Dana. So no, now, um, so I want to ask you, so with all that in mind now, so we have an understanding while we move forward in the conversation, where do you actually stand on this now? Does it fit into one of these classifications or do you have your own way of going about it or do you strictly follow uh, Dr. Heiser or Dr. Beal? I mean, how, how do you um, like define yourself in all of this now? No, now when I talk about, like I said, right now, uh, Dr. Heiser and Dr. Beale are my my primary sources that I'm studying. And Dr. Beale's book is so big; if I live to be a hundred, I'll never get to the end of it. It's just <laughs> massive. Uh, it's a commentary on the Greek text, but he also goes back way. He he's a big proponent of using the Old Testament to interpret the New Testament. Yeah, if if you're having an issue, uh, Dana, reading that entire book, you said then I suggest what you do is you mail a copy to Wide Awake Jim, and he'll have that all read and highlighted for you (laughs) by next Wednesday. (laughs) It might hurt his back just to pick the thing up. I mean, this thing is... But but Dr. Dr. Beale has done a great service in that, you know, he realizes this is a book that not everybody's going to read. You know, people who aren't, you know, into the Hebrew and into the Greek, and, and, and there's no... There's nothing in the Bible that says you need to be a Hebrew or a Greek scholar to understand the scriptures. Uh, the scriptures, when it comes to salvation and living a godly life, are quite clear and plain to anybody who, who can read and understand. Uh, but for, for people who want to specialize in things, his, his book has been a great help. 
but not everybody's going to read that big book. So he has written a shorter commentary. It's still 300 and some, 400 and some pages, something like that. But he's distilled down from his big book to a smaller book, which is much less technical, that you don't need to know the Greek or the Hebrew to study by that book. And it's just Revelation, a, a shorter commentary. Um, and it's, that's one of the things, I mean, that, that Dr. Heiser and Dr. Beal uh, do that I really like is that they're saying that, okay, we've gone to school, we've gotten our PhDs, we live in academic circles, we, we go to work at the ivory tower every day. But the guy in the pew, the, the lady and in, in in, in people in the pew that aren't specialists, that never went to seminary, that didn't get graduate degrees in these things, we need to make what we're doing accessible to them. You know, mm -hmm. there's no reason why we just write scholarly books for other scholars. And so what they're doing is they're distilling, you know, vast sums of knowledge that they've accumulated over years um, and, and doing things that, that we don't do. Studying Hebrew, studying Greek, studying all the, the ancient Near Eastern context of the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And they're boiling it down and writing it so that the layperson can read it and understand it because it's important that they do. You can't gain too much knowledge about the scriptures. You know, nobody's ever, you know, God's not going to fuss at you for studying more. You know, mm. when you get to heaven, he's not going to say, man, you spent all your time reading the Bible. What were you thinking? <laughs> he's not going to yeah. do that. I mean, he, he gave us his word so that we could know him better and we could live uh, a life according to his principles. And, uh, and that, like I said, that we just know him, that he wants to be in relationship with us. I mean, he's a very relational God. He, he, he comes off to us as father. Uh, Jesus talks about, you know, being our, he's our elder brother. Uh, we're in the family of God. We will live with him forever, you know, once all the fussing and fighting over prophecy is done and we get to the very end. Um, and, and so, you know, to help us be able to understand the Bible and to relate to God better, these scholars are doing us a great service by taking really heavy theological scholarly matters and distilling them down into a language that, that any believing Christian can understand. Mm. And I think that's a great thing. I, I, I am thrilled to see that happening. And, um, uh, and also that, you know, the, the guy in the pew can, can be knowledgeable. Uh, that's one of the things I really liked. I really appreciated about Mark, uh, listening to him talk. And here's a guy who studies, you know, mm. <laughs> here's a guy who's really interested in learning more and, and knowing more. And he's, he's quite well read and quite well studied. And that was evident from the things he was saying. And I thought, man, this is really refreshing because I know a lot of Christians that don't even read their Bible, much less study it. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that's such a shame. Um, the Bible should be fun to read. I mean, it should be exciting. It should, you know, open our eyes. It's, the scriptures have been described, you know, the, the word has been described as a light to our path, a lamp in the dark. Uh, out here where I live, uh, it can get really dark at night. And if you go out without a flashlight, you're going to probably step in a hole and break your leg. Um, and so having a light in the darkness is a very helpful thing. And when we look at this world and the darkness that's in this world, the scriptures are a source of light for us, that, that spiritually speaking, to help us navigate, you know, all the craziness that's in the world. Um, so anybody who can take heavy theological concepts and make them accessible to 
to, to me, because uh, I'm not a scholar. I've never claimed to be a scholar. I have no graduate degrees in theology or anything like that. Um, uh, I've, I'm just a fan. I'm, I'm the charter member of the Scholars Fan Club. <laughs> I really like <laughs> scholars. I read their books, and they've helped me a lot, but I am not a scholar by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and you said the the larger book has been boiled down to a three to four hundred page book. Yeah, it's, it's still a good sized book, but it's just it's not near as technical. And, and he wrote it because uh, I mean, Doctor Beal, I've got a friend of mine who who just recently moved to Florida, but he was up in that Philadelphia area where Westminster Theological Seminary is, and he went to church with Doctor Beal. And he said, you know, Dr. Beal was just a regular guy, you know. He said, you know, he, he just, he'd talk with you about, you know, what the Eagles were doing or what the Phillies were doing or, you know, the weather or, or whatever. Just a normal, everyday guy who just happened to be extremely brilliant and extremely well-educated. And God had gifted him with the ability to read and study and write. Uh, and he's written a book that the scholars can just go crazy over because it's 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 considered the the commentary on revelation for the ages mm -hmm. um and he does he comes from a particular school of thought but the thing I, I i don't see him pushing that school of thought as much as he's pushing things like john's use of the old testament in revelation and uh john's you know uh relying on on extra biblical sources other books that were written by thinking religious Jews, these you know weren't hacks. Uh, they're not considered to be part of Scripture, but they inform the biblical writers. Um, I mean, Mark had mentioned the the Book of Enoch. Uh, Enoch was before Noah, and to my knowledge, no writing exists going back that far. So. Mm -hmm. The Book of Enoch showed up sometime in, in that uh, time period between Nebuchadnezzar tearing down the first temple and taking the people off to captivity and then them coming back and starting to rebuild the temple all the way through 70 AD. That whole period is called the Second Temple Period. And a lot of, a lot of thinking religious Jews wrote on a lot of subjects that... Uh, are, are very informative. If you read that stuff, it, it, it's not that uh, you need to read that to better understand the Bible, but it will help you better understand the Bible because you're seeing how people thought about religious matters and biblical matters, Old Testament matters in that day and time. And we miss out on that because we're trying to, you know, interpret prophecy with a calculator and a calendar when we're not even using the same calendar that those people used way back when. Right. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, one of the things, you know, that we also have to look at when we're studying books of the Bible, whether it's prophecy, because that's what we're talking about now, but really any is the Bible. Like I say, the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a library that contains a lot of books. And, um, these books are written in different genres of literature. And just like you wouldn't use the rules that you would use to interpret a Bob Dylan song to critique Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Why? Because they're two completely different things. Mm -hmm. And you've got Hebrew poetry, you've got narrative, you've got prophecy, you've got all these different uh, types of writing in the Bible that each have their own set of rules 
in how they should be interpreted. There's a there's a linguistic uh, context to each of these different things. Now you got you got Revelation, and Revelation is three things. It's a letter. It's letters that going going out to the seven churches. It's also a prophecy written in the school of the prophets, and it's also an apocalyptic. And um, each of these have their own rules. Now, one of the ways we get in trouble in trying to interpret old prophecies in a new light is, like I said, we get a calculator and a calendar and we start you know, taking numbers out of the scripture. Well, in apocalyptic literature, numbers were theological, not mathematical. And keep in mind, the Hebrews did not have a, a system of numerals. You know, they they didn't have numbers. Uh, if they used numbers at all, they might have used the Roman numerals once Rome took over, or they may have used, you know, some sort of mathematical schemes, you know, from the Babylonians or the Assyrians or somebody like that. But they had no numbering system. Um, their numbers came from letters, just kind of like you write your, your name out, uh, your number out longhand on the middle line of a check. That's for people who mm. know what checks are. Nobody uses checks yeah. anymore, but used to be you'd, you'd put the numerical value on one line and then you'd write it out longhand, you know, O-N-E-H-U-N-D-R-E-D dollars, you know. Uh, and it's the same sort of thing. They didn't have an, a numerical system. The Hebrews didn't have that. So when we start taking numbers literally and trying to make them make sense, 